Tim Hag is taking a summer break from his study through Philippians. Instead, we're posted his past teachings on the weekly Torah portion taken from the three-year reading cycle. These lectures were recorded during Shabbat service at Beit Hillel Messianic Synagogue in Tacoma, Washington. During these sessions, Tim usually reads through his own written commentary on the passage at hand and then takes some time to make personal application or to expound on a topic or point. Sermons delivered at Beit Hillel are interactive teachings where questions and comments are added by members of the community. If you would like a copy of Tim's written commentary to follow along, you can find a link in the show notes to download them. Once you've done that, grab your Bible and a pen and let's get started. Our portion for this week is Parashah 140, which covers Deuteronomy 18.1 through 20 and verse 19. Some of you, I hope you all would agree with me, but some of you may not like this. Theology really is important. Because theology is just knowing the truth that God has revealed in His Word. It literally means the teaching about God. That's what the word theology means. And theology is important. We live in an era where, no, where it's, not, it's not right to make distinctions between right and wrong when it comes in theology. Now, I know there are some areas we can't be dogmatic about because we don't have enough information. Okay, But there are some areas we can be dogmatic about. I'm kind of paraphrasing because this is long and I see you all fanning. Well, not all of you, some of you. So we don't want to, uh, we don't want to make it any longer than it needs to be. The first part of my handout here talks about a doctrine or a theology called the priesthood of believers. Okay? Did you notice in our Torah portion that, we talk, that it taught about the priests? What were some of the things that the Torah portion told us? The priests did not have an inheritance in the land. Is that fair? Aren't they, aren't they part of the tribe of Levi? Then shouldn't they have inheritance in the land? Why is that that God put down in his Torah? What do we learn? What's the principle that we learn from that? Here's the principle. The principle is that those who are leaders in religious areas, or, the, or, or in terms of uh, the communities walk with the Lord, those who are leaders and teachers ought not to get wealthy on their leading and teaching. On the other hand, you'll read in the handout that I've done, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be cared for. Even the priests were cared for. Okay, They received some of the gifts that the people brought in and so forth. Their, their livelihood was, was cared for. Is that required of a teacher? No. Paul taught without being re remunerated, right? He said that, however, if you read it carefully, he said, I could demand of you, but I don't, because he didn't want to diminish the, the, the impact of the gospel to the Gentiles. The Gentiles would not know all of the Torah like the, his Jewish uh, friends would. So, some of us worked and taught for 10 years or more. You know, and then there was a blessing that came and they said, you know, we'd like you to spend most of your time doing this, and we'd like to help you do that by making a living for you. And I didn't resist. At first I thought, is this what should happen? But then we <coughs> prayed and, and I said, okay. And uh, we've done that in, in, in other, in other, uh, for other people down through the years as well. So the, the, the point simply is this. Are there priests today? That's a tough question. That's a tricky question. Are there priests today? Well, the Roman Catholic priests are not really priests, are they? I guarantee you they are not the priests that we read about in our text today. You see, there was a big problem after the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple, there was a big problem for this reason. Because people, I believe, misunderstood, majority, not everyone, misunderstood what actually happened in the temple. When someone brought a sacrifice say a guilt offering, and that guilt offering was slaughtered and put upon the altar, was that what caused their sins to be forgiven? Many people think so. Many, many people thought that the Bible taught that if you don't have a Yom Kippur sacrifice, your, uh, your sins are not atoned for. 
There had to be a priesthood. If there weren't a priesthood, there was no way of going to God. The Roman Catholic Church was, took, that, took that doctrine and said, well, let's combine it with another theology. God, didn't get away, God did away with Israel. Now he has a new Israel, which is the church. If you don't think this was early on a theology, an errant or an error theology, then just go read the Epistle of Barnabas. It's dated to 110 to 120. That's pretty early. And it says, God has forsaken the old people, I'm paraphrasing, and has now taken to himself a new people. Who are the new people? Us, the Christians. Now, if you have a new people, are there new ways of looking at things? Absolutely. What the old people had as physical, the new people have as non-physical. Is there a non-physical temple? Yes. And what is that? Us. Didn't Paul say we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes, but it's not simply that you have brick and mortar and you can, you know, everyone has the Spirit who is a believer. So we're all now the temple and especially when we come together a temple. So what sacrifices do we give? Sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of money. Oh yeah, money. Sacrifices, so forth and so on. Okay. So do we need priests? Yes. So they designate the bishops as priests. The priests take on the priestly function. Now, the Protestants, however, in the Protestant Reformation, thought, no, that, that can't be right. The, the Roman Catholic Church is not the kingdom of God. The priests in the Roman Catholic Church are not true priests, but they still had a problem. The old had gone away because the Reformers believed in replacement theology. The Reformers taught that the church had replaced Israel, that the church was the new Israel. Now who's the priests? Everybody. This was born the priesthood of believers. Now, there's a sense in which the priesthood of believer theology is right. In this sense, that we all have access to God without any human being, other human being on this earth being our intercessor, right? But did that only happen after Yeshua came? No, it didn't. Hannah prayed to God. Right? David prayed to God. Abraham prayed to God. He didn't. Abraham didn't have a priest. The priesthood of all believers came as a result of bad theology. Replacement theology was the, one of them, and the idea that the sacrifices actually atoned for sin. Now, you'll say, well, I can show you where it says, and your sins will be atoned for. Yes. On what basis? On, on the basis that there is a forward-looking faith to the one who would be the ultimate sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, just think through this a minute. I hope this isn't too tangled. If a sacrifice could pay for sins, there was no need for Yeshua to come. As long as you would bring your sacrifice, sins were paid for. Has there only always ever been one way of salvation? Yes. Yeshua made it very clear. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You say, well, Tim, he's talking about people in his time and later. Oh, really? Then how come, Mo, uh, how come uh, um, Paul uses Abraham and David as his prime examples of what it means to be justified by faith in Yeshua. In Romans 4. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or accredited to him for righteousness. So those are the two bad theologies that have spawned a whole lot of other bad theologies. And one of them is this idea of priesthood of all believers. Go to the bottom of page 2 and I'll just summarize this. 
Some might point to verses in Revelation to support the priesthood of all believers. I've given you the references there. The first two references, however, are most likely dependent upon Exodus 19.6 and carry the same message, namely, that those who remain steadfast in their faith represent the nation, that is Israel, that is to be defined by the service of the priests and their duties before the Lord. When it says that Israel is a nation of priests, does it mean everyone in Israel is a priest? No. We see this very clearly in the Torah. If a, if, if a non-priest approaches the altar, what's to happen to that person? They die. Okay, so there were a clear distinction. We'll explain why in a minute. Okay, so what does it mean that Israel was a nation of priests? It was a nation represented by priests. It was a nation that was characterized by a priesthood that stood between the common person and God and acted as an intercessor. For what reason? To show us ultimately what the final and ultimate intercessor would be doing. What would he be doing? He would be taking the blood of the sacrifice into the most holy place. Where's the most holy place not made with hands? Heaven. Which is why it was required. Yeshua said in John 14, I must go. Why must you? Just set up the kingdom now. Oh no. There has to be intercession. Uh, an applying, as it were, of his, of his blood at the very throne of the Father on your behalf and my behalf. And, you, and the writer to the Hebrews says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Okay? We need a microphone right up here. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I was uh, wanting to go back real quick to, you know, the Levites are not to have any portion in the land, but in verse 8, chapter 18, it says, They shall eat equal portions except what they receive from the sale of their father's estate. Right. The father's estate does not include land. It includes other uh, uh, kinds of important things. Gold, silver, yeah, all those things. It didn't actually say estate in there. It's yeah. really peculiar. It says except that what was sold by the fathers. Father. Yeah, it's, it's Makar. Yeah. It's, I, ha it, I had another question. I'll just ask this. Uh, this passage is a little bit peculiar because it says that um, each Levite or Cohen is to receive the foreleg, the yeah. Zoroa, and the uh -huh. cheeks and yeah. the stomach. Right. But up to this point, I remembered that it was the right thigh and the breast. Right. That's, I think that's for, a, in, this, in this text, it's giving an overall general. There are specific sacrifices that, are, that have different portions that are given. So th this is speaking in kind of general terms. That's the way I understand it. And then the, um, so I can understand the leg, they would eat it. And then the, uh, the cheeks, it says, it seems a little strange, but after having a, Lloyd's uh, beef gels. Yeah, yeah. I can understand why yeah. they, they would like that. Very good. But then the stomach, what were they doing with the stomach? Eating it or so they're making like tripe? Yes. <laughs> okay. I, I tried tripe once. Yeah, stomach lining is different. Yeah. And then intestine lining. Yes, Gene. During the millennial, how will it be decided who, are, who is eligible to be the priest? Okay, good question. Um, I, I talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, can we just go forward on page three? And, uh, and I think somewhere, yes, I, I do talk about that. Well, okay. Um, what are the ramifications if, as I have suggested, the doctrine of priesthood of all believers is not, in fact, a biblical doctrine? And I'm not in any way saying that we don't have full access to the Father and always have. That's not what I'm saying. But we do not function as priests. That one song that we sing occasionally, I don't know, it says, take me into the Holy of Holies, take me in by the blood of the Lamb. Um, I wish it were worded differently. You know, t how do I go in before the Father? In Yeshua. How do I have access to the Father? In Yeshua. Apart from Yeshua, I have no access to the Father. He is our heavenly high priest. That's the bulk of the book of Hebrews. So, 
First, we should affirm that at least part of the motivation for this doctrine was right on the mark, namely that each believer in Hashem has direct access to the Father through the Messiah. But this has always been the case. Consider Hannah, David, Daniel, Joel, Habakkuk, and others mentioned in the Tanakh, all people who, not being Levitical priests, had ready access to the Father through their prayers. Think of your prayers as a privilege. What is more, for those who exercise saving faith in the promised Messiah, their faith is demonstrated when they brought their sacrifices to the priests, whether in the tabernacle or temple, for in the dramatization of the sacrifice they awaited and looked forward to the coming land of God, Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. I have been somewhat mocked for making that statement. Um, in, a, in a seminar some years ago, somebody raised their hand and said, do you really honestly believe that Old Testament believers looked ahead and, and put their faith in Yeshua? I said, yes, I have no other option than to believe that. They said, how could you believe that? I said, because Paul says that Abraham and David were justified by faith. And I know Abraham didn't stay silent about it. And I'm, I know for certain David didn't because he was a musician and musicians can't stay quiet about anything. <laughs> so, you know, he was singing it. He was teaching all of this to to the people. Secondly, however, and perhaps most importantly, a realization that I am not in fact a priest in the sense of having access to the most holy place for atonement. It leaves me in dire need of a priest. This means that my only access to the Father is in reality through the high priest Yeshua. Apart from him, I have no entrance into the most holy place, which is why it has become the habit to pray in the name of Yeshua. What does that mean? By means of his intercession. And sometimes we don't know how to pray as we want. We say, Lord, I don't even know what to ask. I don't know even how to, how, to, how to pray in this situation. And what does the scripture say? It's okay. The spirit will take your groanings and your utterings and bring them to the Lord in a way that is acceptable and right. Thus, I am fully dependent upon him for access to the Father, and therefore praying in the name of Yeshua takes on an extremely significant value. For each time I evoke the name of Messiah in my prayer, I confess that apart from him I have no way to the Lord. Thirdly, and here's what Jeannie was asking, a realization that the priesthood of all believers doctrine is not biblical, biblically based does away with the problem of a reinstated Levitical priesthood in the millennium. Boy, this is a, this is a hard one for the Christian church. This is why, by the way, from my readings, some of the great theologians gave up on a future millennium and became amillennial. They said, there's no way. If you allow the temple to be reinstated, if you allow the priesthood to be reinstated, you have undone the new covenant. Why? Because they were teaching the new covenant did away with the Torah. At least they're consistent. Since the Levitical priesthood was always a visual aid or foreshadowing of the ultimate Melchizedekian priesthood in Yeshua, the return of the Levitical priest as a necessary part of temple worship in no way contradicts the work of Yeshua as our high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. In this regard, it is interesting to note that in Ezekiel's description of the millennial temple, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, he never speaks of a Kohen Gadol, a high priest. You never read about the high priest in Ezekiel, but constantly refers to the prince, the Nasi, as the one who carries out the functions of the Kohen. So, Jeannie, your question, how will, the, how, how will the Levitical priesthood be reinstated? Well, I can tell you, I know this for certain, that this is at least one way possible. Yeshua knows who's a Levite and not. He knows it all. Right? Has he promised to maintain every tribe in, of Israel? Yeah. He said, you will not be blotted off the face of the earth. So there are people today and ultimately there will be people in the millennium whenever that happens whom God will know, Yeshua will know that they are Levitical and he, will, and he will appoint them. But what will be the purpose? The purpose will be, and I like to ask people this question when we're discussing this issue of theology. And when they say, well, if the, if the temple is reinstated in a millennium, then that does away with the, the new covenant. I say, Why? You don't think Abraham was part of the new covenant? You don't think David was part of the new covenant? It's our thinking that makes new time-bound and old. By the way, it's only one time ever found in the Bible that it says old covenant. You wouldn't, it, that, that, when, I first, when I thought to myself, 
years ago, I'm going to do a quick study on Old Covenant because I hear it all the time. Oh, the old, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant. So I went on my Bible software and put Old Covenant in there and said, what? It's only found one time? 2 Corinthians 3? Yeah, only one time. Why is everybody talking about an Old Covenant? You better find out what 2 Corinthians 3 is talking about when it uses Old Covenant because it's not exactly in any way what people com commonly think of as Old Covenant is before Yeshua came and New Covenant is after He came. Covenants, these covenants are not time-bound. Okay? And by the way, we can talk about this later, I don't think the New Covenant has been fulfilled yet. I think it is being fulfilled, but I don't think it's fulfilled yet. Which is why we must have a theology of Israel in our theologies or we're missing something ma major. Okay, so I ask people, well, why do you think that if the covenant, if the sacrifices are reinstated in the millennium, that it undermines the work of Yeshua? Wouldn't it have undermined the work of Yeshua before? And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, I hadn't thought about that. What did the, what did the sacrifices do before? They pointed to Yeshua. And some would say, I had somebody say this to me, well, before you were married, did you have pictures of your, of your, your, your to-be wife, your fiancé, or your hopeful fiancé? Did you have pictures that you looked at all the time? I said, yeah. I said, you don't do that now. I said, oh, yes, I do. I got a picture of her on my desk. Pictures remind us of a time in history, some event, right? Okay? So, is the sacrificial system a picture? First question, the answer is yes. Second question, was there a group of people that neglected to understand the picture? Those people would be Israel. Is God going to put the picture back up so they see it? Yeah, and who's going to be there to explain it? Yeshua. When, when, he's, when Zechariah says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced, where are they going to look upon him whom they have pierced? He's going to be there in the temple. I can just hear it now. Now do you understand? Now do you see what you missed before? And somebody's going to say, well, but their eyes were blinded. Right? Isaiah 6. So, well, now are your eyes blinded? No. Then God has been faithful to His Word that He would bring about the opening of your eyes and show you the truth and take the heart of stone out and give a heart of flesh. Right? And... Pour out upon you the Spirit of God. What has He done for us? He's done that very thing. We're first fruits. The harvest is yet to be made. But we're the first fruits. We're the first taste of what it is for God to show Himself in His Son Yeshua as the eternal Savior and as the one who is the sacrifice for us. Okay, uh, I don't know where the microphone is. Okay, uh, microphone. Oh, here it comes. And uh, we've got Peter up here too. After, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I just recently went through Ezekiel, and uh, it, I think the inclination is to assume the Nasir is Yeshua, but I just I, I don't yeah, know. I, I I don't know either. Yeah, I yeah. I, I do think uh -huh. he's somewhere there on the scene. He's the king, obviously, but I don't. know. I mean, I just it says it, his sons get in. Yeah, it says his sons. They, you know, it sets well, out how you, they're going to inherit. Let me their ask lands. you something, Jake. Yeah, you a son of God? Yeah. Okay. But. But it's, I think language it's, I, think language. it's I know, but I think it's obviously talking about his, his offspring. Yeah, is what the way it sounds. Is the yeah, well, plainest meaning. Yeah. So, anyway. so are you? Have you been born again? By whom have you been born again? Who really is your father? No. Who is your father? Those are the. That's the language of scripture. Just use the language of scripture and say, you know, Peter. So when Hebrews says there's a change of law and yeah. Now right. it's the king, you know, the tribe of Judah. Right. Will that... No, 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 no. Let me interrupt you here. What he's saying is, Yeshua has no right to be a priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So what is his point? The law as it pertains on the earth is different than the law as pertains in the tabernacle not made with hands. The laws that God gave in the Torah relate to the tabernacle made with hands. When Yeshua went to the tabernacle not made with hands, there are different. There, there must be a change in the way that law is seen in, in heaven 
as opposed to upon the earth. In other words, he does fulfill, and he is the only one who can fulfill that particular role of high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. Through July 14th, you can get the book, How We Got Our Bible by Tim Hegg, on sale for 25% off with the coupon code 2021HOW. Have you ever wondered how the Bible was put together? The Bible we now have is the final form of what took millennia to write and compile. These 66 books that we received as canon are the result of a long history of God's people living with and accepting the Word of God as it, as it was delivered by His prophets and apostles. But what do we know of this history? Where did it all begin and how did it unfold? Much of this history is speculative, at least in terms of its ancient setting. But the Bible itself contains much of this history, and we are therefore able to piece together a reasonable estimation of how the process unfolded. In the book, How We Got Our Bible, Tim Hegg looks at the formation of the Tanakh, or the Old Testament, and the Apostolic Scriptures, or the New Testament, including introductory matters of textual criticism, manuscript history, canonization, inspiration, and translation. Get a copy today for your personal library or as a gift for family and friends. That's How We Got Our Bible by Tim Hegg in softcover on sale for 25% off with the coupon code 2021HOW through July 14th. That's coupon code 2021HOW, 2021HOW, all in lowercase. Get a copy of Tim Hegg's How We Got Our Bible and learn how we got the Bible in the form that we have it today. Other options available in this product are 11 audio sessions with Tim Hegg teaching through each chapter of this book. In these lectures, Tim adds extra commentary and explanation as he takes the students through this material. Now, let's get back to the study. He is the prince, that is, he is the prince that is to come. Now, who's the fake prince that is to come? <laughs> the anti-Messiah. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was, a, was kind of a uh, f uh, representative of that, right? In Daniel 9, the prince who is to come, you know, so forth and so on, and destroy the city and whatever. It's the very language that we have Ezekiel using of, I think, of the millennial temple in which the Messiah will reign. It, does this all sound too fantastic to you all? I mean, at first, it's just kind of like, wow, who came up with this story? Ah, you bring us back to home. Yeah. In other words, if the first two chapters of Genesis are true, not the way the modern people are trying to morph it, okay? But God spoke and it happened. That nothing existed, John 1. Nothing existed before. And he spoke and it came into being. You know, I love I, I loved that. I, you know, you ask somebody, do you really believe that, that all of this happened out of nothing? It just happened? How did that happen? And they give the, these nonsense uh, responses. Well, matter is eternal. Oh, really? Is there any proof that matter is eternal? No. It's just that they know that if they say there is a creator, then they're going to have to deal with it. Right? So if God is creator and Yeshua is creator because John 1 says that nothing exists but what he created it, Father and Son, right? The Spirit is creator because he hovered over the, over the waters. So our God is the God who spoke and it came to being. Our Savior is the one who died and on the third day came back to life. Not because anybody endowed him with life, but that he took life back on his own initiative and sovereignty. So you take the creation and you take the resurrection and then you say, you know what? I think you better read this book again because if this book is his word, we better take heed to it. Genuine saving faith changes a person. If there's no change in a person, we have no reason to think there's genuine saving faith. I've heard testimonies. Now, I was saved, I believe, with all my heart, God saved me when I was five years old. I don't have a life of debauchery. I, I didn't have a life of, you know, was I a liar? Yes. Did I, did I, was I unkind to my parents or spoke out of uh, anger to my parents? I'm sure I did once or twice. And 
I, I know I did because I sat on the steps with a bar of soap numbers of times. <laughs> um, but is there a change in your, in your life? That's the proof of faith. Yeah, I'm a new person. You say, well, what, what, why do you say that? You say, well, because years ago, when somebody said that to me, I would have just given it to them. And, and then, just like our brother said here, I felt sorrow for him. Saying, what? I felt, what am I, some kind of a wimp? Why don't I double up my fist and just hit him in the face like I would have wanted to years ago? And deep down in my, in my heart, I say, oh, this person is dying in sin. This person is broken and needs to be fixed. What, who did that? That's the substance of faith. But God does not give to us. He says, look, in order for you to believe, I'm going to give you five irrefutable uh, things. One, you're going to walk in your house and there's going to be a, a bag of gold coins on the table. Number two, you know, um, uh, the car that you can't fix is going to be turned into a brand new car. Number three, your boss is going to give you a raise tomorrow. No, he doesn't do that. Why? Because that's not faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And remember, see can mean to understand. The word see is found in the Bible to mean to, to gain knowledge. This is why we have light and dark. Darkness is, is ignorance. Light is knowledge. Okay? So when we said faith is the substance of things not seen, do we, can we believe in something we can't fully understand? That we cannot fully explain? Again, I go back to my best illustration. Do you all believe in, that there's light in this room? We could turn it off and you'd see. Say, there's light in this room. How do you know that? Well, because I can see it. Okay, tell me. What exactly is light? Nobody knows. I know it's there, but I can't explain it. Okay, but it doesn't. Okay, okay. Right. Okay. Right. The evidence is what God has done in my life and what I've seen Him do in other people's lives. But can I explain God? No. That requires faith. Faith is saying, yes, I believe, I know to be true on something I cannot fully explain. And he continues to give us opportunities in life of things we can't explain that we have to receive by faith. Right? Do you believe Yeshua is coming again? What evidence do you have? Well, you have witnesses that he said, but how do you know he was telling the truth? You see, you see, it's 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 like dominoes. You take you take, you know, either they all fall or they all stand up, according to the Bible. Okay, Mike. Tangential to this is, if uh, God is so zealous and desirous of the spread of the gospel, why doesn't He just like rearrange the Milky Way to uh, say John three sixteen in Mandarin, which I think is like the most widely spoken language on the planet. Then, you know, next month change it to English, next month to Thai or whatever, you know. I can tell you one reason why it's not his purposes. <laughs> That's all I can say. Okay. Thanks. Okay, had a hand up here. Joshua. On the topic of the priests of the Kohanim from the tribe of Levite and the uh, tribe of Judah, the kings, uh, Zechariah 6, 12 says, Then they yep. say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Right. 
So I was wondering if you could uh, tie that in a little bit to what you were saying and then to Hebrews where it says, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes a place of change okay. of law also. And what? how would you tie those okay. parts is, together? Is Yeshua seated on a throne in heaven today? This was a big enigma for the, for the rabbis because in Daniel chapter 7, there's two thrones. A throne was set next to the throne of the, of the Almighty. And he sat upon the throne and authority was given to him forever. And he had a kingdom that would never end. He's a king on his throne. Is he a priest in the heavenly tabernacle? Absolutely. He is a priest residing as a king on his throne. That was... That was nixed on the earth. The king could not be priest and the priest could not be king. <laughs> but he combined the two offices because both offices uh, spoke to redemption. Is that what that means? What, that means if you, that, that the law of Moses is not, is not mandated in every way in heaven. In, in other words, in the region of heaven, wherever Yeshua is today, the, the law of priesthood that is for the, for the tabernacle or for the, priest, uh, the temple on, on the earth is not the law in heaven. Why? Because the priest is from the tribe of Judah just as a king would be. So what, what, what I understand the writer of the Hebrews, the detractors were saying him, to him, you can't be right. Yeshua cannot be the high priest because he's not of a tribe of Levi. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is, there's a change when it comes to law as to whether you're in heaven or whether you're, or you're at the presence of God or you're here upon the earth. Okay? I mean, it's not a very good analogy, but it's just like if you go to drive in Japan, the laws are different than they are in America. Yeah. Yes. The, what do I do with the phrase, there's no shadow of turning with him? He never changes. Right, does the law change? No, no, no. The law was never a law for heaven. The law was a law for the earth. It's for Israel. It's for earthly priests. He says the only thing we can understand is that the laws which govern priesthood in the heavenly realm are different. There's a change. There's something different in the heavenly realm than there is in the earthly realm. Yeah. Okay, another comment? Um, right, here. I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, you said that the, a king could not be a priest, nor yeah. a priest a king. On the earth. Oh, well, wasn't there some, some place in the Bible that David wore the priest's vest or something? He wore the ephod. And yeah. What was the purpose of that? Well, he never functioned as a priest, but he wore the ephod. My suggestion is, is that he was saying he was... I think, he, I think David had knowledge of the fact that there was coming one of his offspring who would be priest and king. And the reason I think that is because of 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, 9, when he's given the Davidic covenant, right? God says, I'm going to build a house for you, uh, meaning a dynasty, right? And David sat down before the Lord and he said, O oh Lord God, who am I and what is my family that I should be this way? Yet you have spoken uh, with regard to the distant future. And then he says, contrary to most of your English translations, and this is the Torah for mankind. I don't know how the English translations came up with, and this is the custom. Is this the custom of mankind, O oh Lord God? I mean, that, that, they, they, the translators didn't know what to do with this. But, Zotah Torah Adam. This is the Torah for mankind. David understood how is it that in your seed, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed? How is that going to happen? It's going to happen by one who comes from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. The Pardon me? The branch. the branch. Right. Zemach. The branch. And he is the one who will turn the hearts of people unto the Father. He is the one by whom the nations will be reaped. I think, David, I think God gave David the picture. He said, there's coming a king that's going to wear the ephod. You know what? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to portray it right now. Now, he never functioned. He never went into the most holy place. He never functioned as a priest. But he was, I think, foreshadowing that this Davidic king and priest, whose name is Yeshua, would indeed...
be the one that would fulfill the promise made to David. And isn't it interesting that we had it in our own text. This is why we chose the text in, 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 uh, in Acts. Is it, was it in Acts or was it in the Hebrews text? Where it quotes, And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Right? So that's the whole, that's the whole promise. Okay. Does that help? Okay. I don't want to leave you hanging. Uh, <laughs> What do you think about our, what our text says about a false prophet? Let me ask a touchy question, but I don't, I'm not afraid to ask touchy questions. Have there been well-known teachers in the Messianic movement, whatever you want to call it, the Torah movement, who have made false prophecies? Yes. Caleb was in, my son Caleb was in Israel with one of these false prophets, and he prophesied that the Yeshua was coming back in 1999, just as it would maybe turn to 2000. And it didn't happen. And people, there were people that had followed him and left the United States and sold everything they had and went to Israel waiting for the coming of, of Yeshua as they had believed him. And they were outside the, the, the uh, place where, uh, my, where Caleb was staying and this other man was staying and others, well, a little hostile. And uh, there were people outside that wanted his neck. They were yelling and screaming and saying, you come out here and face us. And he wouldn't go out. You know that man is still teaching? You know that he's still gaining followers? And he's doing pretty well financially too. Right. There are three or four others. They continue. They should not be teaching. What does it mean in our text when it says you shall not fear? It means you should not give them any credence. You shouldn't consider them to be giving you the truth. They should be shut their mouth. Now, you say, well, what if they repent? Fine. Baruch Hashem, if they repent. But they shouldn't go back to teaching. In ancient Israel, they wouldn't have the breath to go back teaching. If you get my drift. We have to be careful. When you listen to things, when you watch things, when you see teachings on the internet or somewhere, do a little investigation. Who is the teacher? Is he or she reputable? Do they have a good reputation amongst the community and communities in which... Um, they, they reside. Okay. Um, that leads us to a final question, and I'll be done in five minutes. The question of whether or not Hashem, I'm on page six, is still sending prophets in our days is an interesting one. We know that in the first century congregations of the way, there were those who held the position of prophet. Now, it's different to have the gift of prophecy than hold to the office of a prophet, as far as I can understand. The interpretation that these were those who simply taught the scriptures but did not disclose revelations of the future simply cannot be sustained because there's too many evidences of someone who said there's something future coming, we need to prepare for it, and it did come, it did happen. All uses of the term prophet as an office involve in one measure or another the prediction of the future based upon revelation. Now, the gift of prophecy can simply be speaking forth what the word of God has said. Okay, the gift of prophecy. But the office of a prophet is someone who not only teaches, but also gives the revelation of God which has not yet been given. Though the prophet was known for simply declaring the truth about God, he or she was also involved in disclosing the future based upon the received revelation. While some have wanted to distinguish between the prophets in the Tanakh and those read about in the apostolic scriptures, it seems that such a distinction is somewhat arbitrary. At least that's my suggestion. I do like uh, Grudem's work. I think he has a lot to commend, but I'd like to see him take it just a little bit further. I'll let you read that. So this idea that I would agree with Dr. Grudem in that prophets of the time of the, of the Tanakh as well as the time of the, of the early century, um, like we read in, in Corinthians and so forth, the, the, they differ in this. They were not writing prophets. Their works did not become scripture. So that's a significant difference. But did some prophets in the time of Yeshua and the time of the apostles, did they talk about something coming in the future and warn people and that it happened? Yes. That did happen. We find it in the book of Acts. That's all I'm saying. We have to give credence to that. 
So while this explanation would, could solve the issue of how prophets were to be judged in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems to me to make too great a distinction and leave the so-called New Testament prophet without any guidelines nor the congregation any recourse when the false prophet is identified. What is more, so my point is simply this, that if we have false prophets amongst us, we can't stone them, but we ought to treat them as though they were stoned. What is more, the fact that the Septuagint used the same Greek term, prophetes, for the ancient prophet in Israel, as in the apostolic scriptures used for the prophet in the congregation, would lead one to believe that in their minds they consider the position to have had continuity with the ancient prophets, that is, in the sense that there were cases where some prophets foretold the future for the sake of the believing community, warned them about things coming and so forth. How then should we apply our Torah text to the current day? It seems very straightforward. If someone claims to speak in the name of Hashem and proclaims that such and such will happen in the future, when the time frame expires which the prophet delineated and the prophesied event has not occurred, that prophet is to be labeled a false prophet and is no longer to be revered, feared, with regard to his or her teaching. It seems that a great many false prophets are still actively teaching via radio, TV, and internet who, for all practical purposes, should be entirely disregarded. Of course, in the diaspora and apart from the rule of Messiah in the land, the application of the death penalty is an impossibility. But I think we treat them as though they are no longer to be listened to. It may also be the case that the gift of prophecy in Romans 12.6 and 1 Corinthians 12.10 was given to some within the early communities of the way in order that those given the gift of prophecy would communicate God's direction for the believers of Yeshua until such time as the inspired apostolic scriptures would be written. And that's the view that I take. I think that the apostles were in the process of teaching what needed to be taught with the influx of Gentiles coming in now to the ecclesia. There were new issues, there were new problems, and they needed new instruction. How do we deal with this? And I think that was the primary role of the prophets. It says, this may be how we are to understand Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If it was something that was necessary for the ongoing body of the Messiah, I don't think Paul would have written that. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now some take that to mean when the perfect one comes, that is Yeshua. But I think by speaking of the perfect, which is to come, here Paul may be referring to the completion of the apostolic scriptures and thus the biblical canon. In the following verses verses 11 through 13, even the written canon of Scripture is made complete by the return of Yeshua, who is the Word, and therefore the one by whom all things are brought to their final completion. As Paul writes in Ephesians, the summing up of all things in Messiah, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So you say, well, Tim, do you think the Bible will be expanded when Yeshua comes? I don't, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it will be, it will be more perfectly understood. The things that we don't know and don't quite be able to put together, he will make clear to us. And the prophecies, prophecies will be complete, completed, right. Having discussed the possibility of the priest and prophet, Moses goes on to recap the laws of the cities of refuge. And what does he do here? He simply, well, if you go to the last page, the land was in, in initially to be divided into three parts so that the cities of refuge were not determined with reference to population centers, but in relationship to borders and to the proximity of one to the other. In other words, they were to be sufficiently distributed throughout the land so as to make access to them more or less equal for all, regardless of where they lived in Israel. Why? Because life is sacred. When someone accidentally commits homicide and he or she flees to the city of refuge, they need to have ready access to a place of safety. Because until things were set up in the land itself, there was, there was no hope if the avenger of blood uh, came and could take your life by law. The one eligible to flee to the city of refuge is clearly the one who has committed manslaughter, a murder which was accidental and not premeditated. By the way, it's this passage of scripture that underlies a lot of the jurisprudence in our own land about what is premeditated murder and what is first, second, third degree murder and so forth and so on. Anger against a fellow man could always be construed as motive for murder. Yeshua says, don't hate. Hate is like murder, because that's where murder starts, right? Hatred. 
and would thus make suspect the one who claimed manslaughter. Furthermore, one would have to presume that the axe head which slipped, or the chunk of wood which slipped from the axe head, so one interpretation, was loose not by negligence, but by some other means. Remember, negligence is considered to be culpability by the Torah, right? If you have a bull that gores and you don't put that bull in a safe place and that bull goes and gores somebody, you're responsible. Or don't maintain your equipment. Or don't maintain your equipment. Like brakes? Okay. We're not advertising anybody here. Okay. The adding of three more cities is so that the innocent blood not be shed in the land. In fact, the cities of refuge are a beautiful illustration of the balance God has between desiring holiness for his people, thus allowing the avenger of blood to put a guilty murderer to death, and preserving innocent life in the midst of a fallen world where accidental injury and death will most assuredly occur. But he remembers the recipe from which we were made. What did he do? He took some dust. And he knows that until sin is entirely removed from our existence, we will deal with the sorrows and woes of life which are inevitable. Yet in spite of these inevitabilities, the Lord demands that righteousness prevail and that the innocent have their lives preserved. This also is an enduring principle that should characterize our corporate and individual lives. The more that we see the erosion of righteousness in our nation, the more we should be concerned about how other things are going to fall away. When life becomes less than sacred, we're on the verge of a tipping point. And this is why seeking everything we can do to help um, abolish abortions, um, just abortions on will, um, I think is a, is a very, very valuable thing for us to do. We hope you found this discussion helpful in your Torah studies for this week. Our mission at Torah Resource is to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. If you would like more information about Torah Resource or to browse our product catalog and free resources, please go to TorahResource.com. To download a free triennial Torah portion reading schedule, please check the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this resource with your interested family and friends. Be sure to join us next week as we study through the Torah with Tim Haig.